So Charles Colson was an attorney who was known as President Nixon's hatchet man. And maybe you remember, you've heard of Charles Colson. He was involved in the Watergate scandal that led to President Nixon's resignation and eventually to uh, Charles Colson's own imprisonment. However, uh, Charles later became a Christian, and he founded a, a prison ministry, and he spoke extensively on uh, Christian engagement with culture. When asked why he believed in the resurrection of Christ, Colson would point to the eyewitness accounts of the disciples and 500 others who reported seeing Jesus risen from the tomb. The follow-up question to that, of course, uh, would be, how do you know they weren't lying? What if it was just a hoax? And Colson wrote in response, but what about the disciples? Twelve powerless men, peasants, really, were facing not just embarrassment or political disgrace, but beatings, stoning, execution. Every one of the disciples insisted to their dying breaths that they had physically seen Jesus bodily raised from the dead. Don't you think that one of those apostles would have cracked before being beheaded and stoned, that one of them would have made a deal with the authorities? None did. Men will give their lives for something they believe to be true, but they will never give their lives for something they know to be false. No, you can take it from an expert in cover-ups, I've lived through Watergate, that nothing less than the resurrected Christ could have caused those men to maintain to their dying whispers that Jesus is alive and is Lord. Now that's a powerful argument to consider for Christ's resurrection and one that demands belief. But one of the questions that struck me as I read that uh, quote from Colson and I thought about the experience of the disciples is what kind of refuge strengthens a person to live like they did? One psalm that was certainly on their minds as they faced trouble in their lives was this psalm of David's, Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge, David says. And then he proceeds throughout the psalm to describe his refuge. But before we dive in, ask yourselves, what kind of refuge do you need on this Easter Sunday morning? Is there a refuge that can give you the strength to face life and death the way the disciples did? What does it mean to say to the Lord, preserve me? David will give you words for your request. That's what the Psalms do. They give us words to speak to the Lord. And so the first words that, the, that David gives us are, Lord, you are the good of my life. So that will be my first point. The good of my life. These are words that claim God as your refuge. Lord, there is no one else to whom I can go. I count all other things as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing you. Right? A thousand years after David, the Apostle Paul also learned 
that this was the secret to being content. If you want to rest in a refuge, you've got to commit to that refuge, which means confessing with David here. You are my Lord. I have no other good apart from you. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, God is the only good thing in your life, or else David would not be able to say in the next verse that he delights in God's people. He finds them to be a good thing. Rather, what he means here is that God is the source of all good in his life. Uh, Apart from God, you receive no good, and all that is good comes from the Lord. This means for you kids out there that your Legos or your stuffed animals or your favorite video games or your friends or even your parents cannot be your refuge in this life because all that is given can be taken away. And nothing that is given to you can promise that it will always stay. The only refuge that cannot be lost is the giver himself, God. So commit to him fully now while you are young and learn to hold loosely to the things that he gives you. And you will learn the secret to being content. But this psalm tells us three more things about uh, what it looks like to claim God as the good of your life. And one thing it means is we delight in his people. We see this in verse 3. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Of all the good things that God gives David, he prioritizes one, God's people. Now, some of you may remember that when God made the first man Adam, there was one thing that was not good in all the things that he made. It was not good that Adam be alone. And so David here recognizes it to be of the essence of enjoying God, that he do so in communion with other people. In other words, there's no such thing as me and God. It's always us and God. God is the refuge, but we don't inhabit that refuge alone. We inhabit it, we claim it, along with other believers who share the same story as us, who are, who are headed to the same destination. When you think about it, right, that your fellow believers, they are really the only earthly thing that you can be confident you will take with you into the next life. Now, you may look around and say to yourself, these are all in whom is my delight? Well, David must have been a bit more selective with his congregation. But we've got to learn to see other believers the way that God sees them. There's an excellent book uh, called A Place to Belong, Learning to Love the Local Church by Megan Hill. And the author's goal in in this book is to convince us to stop seeing the church through our own eyes, but see it instead the way that God does. These people are God's beloved. He has called them, gathered them like a 
shepherd gathering a flock, uh, like a body with no unimportant parts, all of them saints working together to grow in holiness, uh, brothers and sisters in a, in a family, gospel partners with great work ahead of them, part of the multitude of God's people from all times, all places. This is who the people around you are. They are not their weaknesses and sins and awkwardnesses. And Megan Hill writes in her book, when we take seriously what God says about his church, it will shape our experience of belonging there. God says these people are his beloved. The ones he delights to rejoice and sing over. Those are biblical images. I'm not making that up. God, who knows everything, says he delights over these people. Would you dare then to hold your nose up towards them? What would it look like for you to nourish this perspective in your life, that other believers are the excellent ones in whom is all your delight? Uh, maybe there are actual priorities you need to shift. Maybe you just need a change in mindset. But this delight begins when we set God above ourselves as the good thing, above all others, and then we begin to shape our lives around what he says is good. And what he says is good is the bride of his son, the church. But now a second thing that we need to do when we claim God as our good thing is we need to resist idolatry. David warns us about this in verse 4. He says, The sorrows of those who run after another God will multiply. And in the world he lived in, these gods were the other refuges that people would go to. Uh, so, you know, if someone was sick in your house, you could go to pray to this God. And, and, you know, if there was a drought and your crops were are dying, you could go and you could pray to this God. And if, you know, your enemies were defeating you in battle and your alliances were falling apart, you could go pray to this God. Don't underestimate how tempting those paths might have been for David. And don't underestimate the danger of such idolatry to yourself. Uh, doctors and medicines go from good created things to an idolatrous refuge. Uh, government programs and uh, armies move from being wise use of resources into the only refuge in a time of uncertainty. Coping mechanisms turn into addictions. Leaders become saviors. Uh, more knowledge becomes the answer to all the problems. Good dreams become what you must have to be happy. But sorrows still multiply. Do not abandon your true refuge for what glitters. That which is seen is temporary, but that which is unseen is eternal. And so instead, and this is the third thing we see here, uh, be content with God and his gifts. We can see this in verses 5 to 6. David uh, begins by claiming the Lord as his portion and his cup, his food and his drink. David is the king. He has many things, but he is satisfied with God, 
and with whatever the Lord decides to give him. Uh, that's what uh, you hold my lot means. In, in Israel, the inheritance of the tribes was determined by the casting of a lot. And so, you know, David, by, by using this image, is saying, God, you be in charge of that. You decide what my inheritance looks like. What David is saying here may sometimes be very difficult to say. I'm sure it wasn't always easy for him. But that kind of contentment, the kind of contentment he shows here, grows in our hearts when we claim God as the good of our lives. That's how we make him our refuge. But as we begin then to walk the path of life, we need a guide. And so David secondly teaches us to say, Lord, you are the guide of my life. Uh, so my second point, the guide of my life. Uh, most of you, like me, probably learned to drive before there were GPSs or smartphones to tell you where to go. Uh, our young adults will perhaps find this inconceivable, but when I was going somewhere growing up, I had to print out my directions from MapQuest or... Uh, you know, memorize them if it wasn't too far, or, you know, most often there was a phase where I'd write my directions on my hand, which is, you know, it's a little bit risky if you washed your hands before you left, or you got sweaty and your directions rubbed off on the steering wheel. Well, then you had to consult the big map book in your back seat, or gasp, stop and ask someone for directions. But now the plus side of all of this was that I was much more engaged in driving. Uh, I, I quickly formed mental maps in my head and I connected the routes that I usually took together. And really, I, I was a much more capable driver. Unfortunately for you, by the time I moved to Reading, the smartphone was in and the brain was out. And so I just follow my phone's directions blindly now. Uh, so, you know, when one of you older folks says to me, uh, you know where you go over the bridge on 183, there's a diner on the right where there used to be the cornfields? I probably have no idea, and you should just tell me the address, and we'll work it out from there. But, here's my point, that is not the way that David describes God's guidance. God is not like a GPS or a phone. He says in verse 7, the Lord gives me counsel. He advises me. He doesn't coerce, David. It's not some sort of blind mechanical process where you type in the address, you follow the rules, or, you know, a, a secret code where you follow the clues and you kind of hope you're on the right track, but you never really know. This is a God who counsels his people. Now, we need to recognize this is the counsel of the Lord who, who knows and sees all, so ignoring it would be foolish, but it is a counsel that invites interaction. Uh, notice the parallel line there in, in verse 7. He goes on to say, in the night, uh, in the night, uh, verse 7, in the night also my heart instructs me, he says. Uh, there's this harmony, an interplay between the Lord's counsel and the heart of his followers. Again, you know, notice the context, right? David, he's not just someone, you know, randomly picking up the Bible for the first time, opening it for directions. That's not how God's counsel typically works. David is someone who 
has made the Lord his refuge, chosen the Lord as the good of his life. And within that relationship, there's this uh, listening and then personal meditation, right? He says, in the night. That's the time when you think through the day and uh, you wrestle with your hard decisions. David's heart in that time instructs him based on the Lord's counsel that he's received. And, you know, this word that he uses, heart, in the Bible, that's not just about how uh, you feel. That's sometimes how we use that word now. But instead, it's the place deep within us that governs all the parts of our inner being. So what we know, what we desire, and what we choose. So the guidance that David describes is when all these aspects of your heart, your mind, uh, your uh, desires, and your will are, are listening to God's counsel. That comes first. At the beginning of the decision, you listen, and then you meditate on that counsel in your inner being when all is quiet to determine what way you should go. And we read a book in adult Sunday school a while back called With All Your Heart by Craig Troxell, and that helps to orient you and all these aspects of your heart towards the Lord. But this intentional engagement that we see in David as he thinks about how the Lord is his guide continues in verse 8, where David says, I have set the Lord always before me. He's, he's made a critical choice here that we need to notice. You see, some people functionally sort of set the Lord way off on the side in their lives. They, they pay attention to God in moments of desperation or sort of as a formality, you know, uh, when they pray before they eat or when they maybe go to church a couple Sundays each year, Easter, maybe but you will not feel guided by the Lord if that's where you set him in your life. You need to set him where you can see him all the time. I know that sounds almost disrespectful, as if you could move God around. And yet, while God sometimes does break his way into our lives, more often he gives us freedom to decide how obsessively we will pursue him. But that choice has a direct impact on whether our steps are confident and upright or uncertain and perhaps damaging. But here is comfort for the wavering Christian. If you will set the Lord before you, he is willing to stand at your right hand. Normally, that's the place of the servant who stands ready to jump uh, into action to protect their leader. But God is not too high and too mighty to come stand at your right hand. That's what David describes here in verse 8. That's what God did when he sent Jesus to earth to serve and not to be served. Jesus stands at your right hand to intercede for you so that when you enter the next life made perfect by your savior you can stand at the right hand of god and you can serve him make sure you notice that shift there at the very end of the psalm verse 11 from needing the lord at your right hand to being at the lord's right hand set the lord always 
before you and you will not be shaken. So we turn finally to verses 9 to 11 where David teaches us to say, Lord, you are the guardian of my life. So my third point, the guardian of my life. And as we look at this final portion of the psalm, David tells us how we should be feeling at this point. He says in verse 9, Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. And that word, therefore, is a key transition. Because when someone says, therefore, they're about to say something based on everything they've just said. In other words, because God is the good and the guide of my life, David is saying, I am filled with rejoicing. Uh, this, This word, therefore, is actually alerting us to the grammatical center of the text. Everything that came before is telling us the reasons for this statement of rejoicing. And notice also the beginning of verse 10. He says, for or because, another transition there. For or because, and he gives more reasons for this statement to rest upon. So grammatically, verse 9 is the mountain peak of this psalm. It's what flows from claiming God as your refuge. Joy and the security of your flesh. That's what the disciples had that made them so strong in the face of persecution. Notice uh, so far that we've seen that this refuge gives David purpose. God is his guide. And direction. Sorry, God is his, it gives him purpose. God is his good. And direction, God is his guide. But the question that remains is uh, the question of duration. How long does this preservation last? Does it last only until physical death? Does it gain David an extra year or two? No. This is an eternal refuge because God is also the guardian of David's life. And so David says in verse 10, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, He understands that he will die, but claims that he will not be abandoned to death. Death will not conquer him. And it's helpful here to understand uh, that in the Old Testament, this word sheol that he uses can mean two different things. Okay, so on the one hand, it can refer generally to the grave. And in that sense, everyone goes to Sheol. Everyone dies. Everyone lands in the grave. On the other hand, it can also refer specifically to the place of the wicked. Uh, Old Testament believers understood that at death, the souls of the wicked went one place. The souls of believers went to another place. But unless the writer describes this place in a way that it's clear, it's where the wicked go, you want to prefer the general meaning of Sheol, which is what we have here. And so what... What David is saying is, I know I will die. I know I will go to Sheol, like all humans. But I also know that I will not be abandoned to death. God is my guardian. He will not allow death to be victorious over me. This is David's Easter refuge. And he goes on. 
nor will you let your Holy One see corruption. Now, this is a tricky verse to understand, so stick with me here, okay? It might be tempting to say here that David is switching subjects uh, so that when he says, your Holy One, he's no longer referring to himself, but he's referring to the Messiah in these verses. Peter says in Acts 2.31 that David uh, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, right? David Lucas read that for us earlier. Uh, You see, King David didn't accidentally prophesy about Jesus. He foresaw Jesus' resurrection. And yet, if we see David here as only referring to Jesus, I think we miss David's own hope of resurrection. It would actually be unusual for David to switch subjects right in the middle of this uh, verse. And I'll give you two reasons very quickly. First, if you just look at verse 10 with me, uh, you'll see that these two lines are in, they're parallel to each other. Okay, so parallelism is when two lines are linked by meaning. Uh, Usually the second sort of restates what the first said in a slightly different way. Uh, You'll find this all over the Psalms, all over Proverbs. Uh, Often the second line will add something new, and this one does that, right? It adds something new to what David is saying about life after death. But for the subject itself to change would be unusual. And so the assumption here is that my soul refers to the same person as your Holy One. And in fact, that's how Peter interprets this verse in Acts 2.31, which David again read for us. Jesus was not abandoned to Hades, and his flesh did not see corruption. The same subject for both parts of the verse, although, of course, in that case, the prophetic subject, Jesus. And then secondly, this word, uh, holy one, this is used throughout the Psalms. It's the typical word for God's people. It's often translated godly one, faithful one, saint. Uh, It doesn't refer to the Messiah anywhere else throughout the Old Testament. And so it's actually best to understand David as speaking about his own hope of resurrection here. And the hope of every faithful believer who sings this psalm, which many, many have throughout the centuries. That God, who is their guardian, will not abandon them to death or allow their bodies to remain in corruption. And so when David says, your holy one would not see corruption, what he believed was that his body would one day resurrected. How could David know this? Well, Peter tells us David foresaw, right? He foresaw that one of his descendants, the son that God had promised him who would rule on his throne forever, would make these words come true, would fulfill this hope that he had. David lived his life on reliance on that promise. He proclaimed his belief in resurrection life on the basis of that promise. So the question for you is, what is that promise to you? Are you 
Abel to keep singing David's song past verse 10 and on to verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is a refuge that lasts forever that David is describing here. David is pointing you to a God who is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Is this God your refuge? Have you asked him to preserve you, body and soul? He is ready to be the good of your life. He is ready to be the guide of your life and your guardian. And if you feel cynical about the existence of this refuge, Easter Sunday is a good morning to rethink your doubts. Go back with me to an Easter morning more than 2,000 years ago. The sun hasn't risen yet. Jesus has been dead for three days, and his followers sit in the darkness of his death. They had made him their refuge. Read the Gospels. There was nobody like him, right? They thought he was the promised descendant of David. But now they doubt. Yet here is what happened. In only a few hours, Jesus began revealing himself to them alive. And later he showed himself to more than 500 others, many who were alive when the books of the New Testament were being written. His resurrection proved to them conclusively that he is the refuge that can preserve life. They will believe in that refuge so truly that they will die for him. David sees through the eyes of faith, and his heart is glad. His whole being rejoices. His flesh dwells secure. How much more should we rejoice today who look back on the acts of history? May your hearts fill with gladness and your flesh dwell secure. Christian, alleluia. Jesus is the refuge of the living. He is your good. He is your guide, and he is your guardian. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we proclaim you today with joyful hearts as risen. You have shown the world that death does not have the final word. You have conquered that final enemy. You have shown us who the true refuge of our lives ought to be, and so we claim you as that refuge. Preserve us, we pray. We have no good apart from you. We set you before ourselves now, a cloud by day, a fire by night to lead us through this wilderness. Your soul was not abandoned to the grave. Your flesh did not see corruption, and we follow you on that, the path of life to know you forevermore. We ask you to stand at our right hand now and help us that one day we might stand with you at the right hand of our Father in heaven. And we pray this in your mighty name. Amen.